This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come sit by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Uh, No doubt you've heard reports uh, that honeybees are quickly disappearing. You've seen it on the news. You may have even noticed it for yourself firsthand out in your your garden. Uh, Beekeeper George Scott is standing by. He's also an expert in chemical pesticides and will explore the link between the use of certain pesticides and the uh, the decimated bee population, and also discuss why honeybees are so vital, not only to agriculture, the production of food, but to our very survival. A real wake-up call. George Scott is in Niagara Falls, and we'll talk in moments. Just a quick note, uh, there is no HOA tonight, no hangout on air. We'll resume the live stream on YouTube of this program in a few weeks, July 24th, and that is when Albert, my intrepid uh, producer, will be back, and you'll be able to stream this radio program once again on YouTube. In the meantime, please get on up to the website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca. There's a radio page there for this program, of course, and please visit that and explore it. You can register as a member by clicking on the the blue member button on the uh, the left-hand side. It's quick, easy and free. And once you've registered, you gain access to member-only areas of the website, like the, like the book club uh, and the, uh, the, the audio archives. You can listen to past shows going all the way back to the summer of 2012. Uh, also at strangeplanet.ca is the live events section. And make sure you check that out periodically. I'll be presenting two great live events this fall, uh, September the 11th, Where Did the Towers Go with Dr. Judy Wood, And then October the 16th, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. Uh, We'll also have some special guests joining us by Skype, and that'll be featuring uh, rock and roll investigator Gary Patterson. More information on those events coming soon. A season four of my television program, The Conspiracy Show, now airing across Canada on Vision TV. Uh, Just a reminder, Monday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern. 
uh, brand new episodes. Mark it down. Season four of The Conspiracy Show, the television program, Monday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern on Vision TV. All right. Think twice uh, before swatting away those pesky buzzing bees. Uh, Since 2005, worldwide, honeybee populations have plummeted, leading farmers, scientists, beekeepers down a rabbit hole of anxiety and worry about the future of our very food supply. It's complicated, it's controversial, uh, and involves major chemical brands, environmentalists around the world, and uh, uh, governments around the world. Uh, And people should pay attention, even if they're not involved in these organizations. If honeybees continue to die, healthy eaters everywhere are going to have a harder time stocking up on favorite fruits and vegetables. George Scott has been a registered beekeeper for more than 25 years. He's a passionate advocate for beekeeping as a crucial component for Ontario's agricultural success, now and in the future. He's a member of the Niagara Beekeepers Association. In 2001, he founded the Niagara Bee Way, dedicated to the protection and preservation of Niagara's honeybee populations. George believes that the survival and health of the beekeeping industry is pivotal and is totally aligned to the mandate and concerns of the OFA at many levels. George Scott, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Thanks for that great introduction. I'm feeling two inches taller already. <laughs> All right. So the, the, we laid out sort of the, the bad news, 2005. Uh, is that when we really started to take notice? Is, is that sort of sort of ground zero, or is that just when we started to take notice that bee populations were starting to die off? Well, we go back a little bit further than that, but 2005, really, we saw the first impact where we did not know what was happening, and it was a couple of years in a row, but for many years, we've been offering all residents of Niagara free service. If you've got a swarm of honeybees hanging on your pool backyard and guests coming over in an hour, and you don't know what to do, and you run down to Canadian Tire Home Hardware or your hardware store to get Hornet Blaster. Um, That's something you'll see our poster right there for an environmental alternative. Give us a call. We'll attend to your situation. We had those monitors out before they introduced the new insecticide. So we knew exactly how many people would respond, how many, where they were, et cetera, et cetera, for swarms because Niagara is the home of the honeybee. Hmm. one of the most God-given, perfect, beautiful places to be raising honeybees. We supply honeybees throughout Canada from Niagara, and we have a great history and a tradition of supplying honeybees for various pollination services, honey makers, etc., all coming from uh, the biggest honey producers who are here in Niagara. Okay, give us a sense, though, of, of, let's start with 2005. I mean, when you went out to your hives... Were you noticing a, a marked decrease in the, in the population in your hives? Oh, for the first time, we were wiped out totally in 2005. We lost 100% of all the bees in our boxes, so we didn't have any. And not only that, we didn't have any dead bees even to study. They were gone, and it was a mystery. We call it uh, colony collapse disorder. All of a sudden, uh, they don't survive. And they all tend to die en masse, and the problem with that is not many viruses or bacteria really kill them like that. Well, that is that is a mystery because you would think, uh, uh, you know, a few of them before they die would make it back to the hive and die in the hive, but none of them died in the hive, apparently. Well, you don't even have them. So what we immediately started looking at was, um, number one, why do certain bees survive? We had the Niagara Bee Way. It's a, if you go to the NiagaraBeeWay.com website, you'll see the map right on our homepage. 
what happened was when we had our retrieval service out, here's our science. Every time somebody called, we say, what's your address? We put a pin on the map. Mm -hmm. It became very clear all of a sudden there were no bees anywhere else except for in a heavily concentrated area, two and a half kilometers on each side of the St. Lawrence Seaway. We thought it was the mineralization from when our grandparents dug the St. Lawrence Seaway, they turned the ground upside down, and that the bees were accessing some sort of mineral or some sort of something or other that was helping. Fascinating. And it wasn't, it was a water-soluble insecticide. They're insects. The water in the well and canal, since it's man-made, there's no drainage going into the canal. It's really a lake. So the water has no detection of the new insecticides or farm chemicals that we're spraying pretty much everywhere now. Now, who, who figured that mystery out? That was an observation by looking at the board with the pins on it. There's our great scientists. Aren't we great scientists? We look at the board and said all of a sudden 86% are within two and a half kilometers. Over the next eight years, it went up to 96% and not within 200 kilometers, with two, within 200 meters. So that strip became smaller and smaller and smaller over the last 10 years since we first started to notice this phenomena. And we get almost no calls for swarm retrieval in the rest of the whole area of Niagara. So we are, we are much more concentrated along that water line because that's where the bees can tolerate this new insecticide. And, and how or when was it that beekeepers, scientists, environmentalists were able to connect the dots and figure out what was decimating the bee population? Oh, there's been hundreds of studies from people in France and Italy and all over the place about crops and yield and all sorts of interesting things. But what really is the key matter for the honeybee is that the honeybee seeks out this material. This material is chlorinated nicotine, and what the bees do is if you put sugar and water in a bowl and sugar and water with the insecticide based on chlorinated nicotine, the bees would go for that one all the time. Ah. So they, no matter how you use it or where you're using it in your backyard, on your roses or anything, the bees don't just get exposed to it. They seek it out, and they're crafty little demons, those girls. They can get in everywhere, so if you're making a pollinator garden and you're using that in your backyard or your dog's treated with this chemical and it goes to the washroom all winter long and then that urine or whatever from the dog goes up into a big cherry tree, it's totally contaminated with these new chemicals and that's how the bees get them because they seek them out. Now, who is behind the production of this chlorinated nicotine and what is, it, what is its purpose? Well, it is one of the most clever insecticides ever because you only need a little bit. Say, uh, say you're a farmer and you want to spray a field. You know, you've got that big tanker behind your tractor and you drop the two arms down and it sprays a mist. Right. And you used to put 6,000 liters of uh, chemical in there, of which really, you know, 4,000 liters was water. So you're really only putting in 2,000 liters of, say, something like DDT. You're spraying that field for insecticides for insect control, and you're putting about 2,000 liters in a 6,000 liter tank. The new chemical, you put in one liter. Wow. And not only that, it kills insects like none of the other chemicals ever before. This is a new type of chemical because we've moved into a new range of thinking. 
that range of thinking we've been very, very good at and give a big round of applause for our farmers. It's called understanding parts per million. Right. Everyone right. speaks that language now. You've got parts per million iron in your water. You've got crummy water. You've got sulfur dioxide by parts per million in your water. That stinks. You know all about parts per million. You get a cut on your arm, you're dying. You get parts per million of an antibiotic, you're fine. Right, right. This new insecticide is parts per billion. Oh it my. is absolutely lethal to bees at 36 parts per billion. Where I live here in Niagara, there is no equipment that can see this in action. We cannot detect down to 36 parts per billion with any of our medical equipment or our universities or anything. We can't go that low. <clears throat> you need very specific equipment even to look at that. And, and when, did they, when did we, as a society, start using this uh, chlorinated um, uh, nicotine? Well, when we moved into this new century, okay, start, we started it. So the last 15, yeah, yeah. 15 so 16 in, years. Uh, in the year 2000, we pretty much started looking at it, and boy, did it ever hit well, and then advertising started to go out, and then it became a $6.6 billion a year supply market, which is an enormous amount of chemical. So now it's one of our biggest. It's not like a coincidental or anything like that. In Niagara, it's in 70% of our produce. Any, are there any uh, ill effects on, on humans? Have any human studies been done? Well, now that uh, the studies are just starting to come out, there are hundreds. There is no detection for somebody, nor are our doctors aware of what the symptoms are or how do you provide symptomatic relief. you got somebody coming in and they're shaking or jumping up on their left-hand foot. Well, somebody knows what that is. But our doctors don't have any diagnostic tools nor can they send you into a lab and say, here, pee in a cup, and we'll tell you how much of this neurotoxin you've got in you. In Japan, they do, and they're finding many. So it is classified as a neurotoxin. It is a neurotoxin. That is its function. It's supposed to do that. Ah. That's, that's what it's designed to do. It goes in there, and its primary target is between the cells in a little place where a chemical called acetylcholine esterase is released between the cells. When you interfere with that with neonicotinoids, it keeps that signal chain open so that that cell line no longer transmits. And if you're an insect, that pretty much means you can't move, you can't eat, or in low doses, you forget. Forget how to fly. Forget how to get back to the hive. How to get... Well, the how to get back to the hive was a real mystery for many people. Why did the colony not only die, but how come there's no members in there other than just uh, the re recently hatched in that last week, all clustered up in the corner of the new hatches. There's no nursing bees. There's no foragers. There's no defenders. There's no evaporators. There's no bricklayers. There's nothing in the hive except for young hatch bees. Okay, George, i got to jump in here because we're going to take a time out. George Scott, yep. beekeeper, expert on uh, chemical pesticides. Where are all the bees going? How do we get them back? We'll get to more of this conversation when The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. 
You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And we are back. George Scott is with us, beekeeper for 25 years in the Niagara region of Ontario and uh, also an expert in chemical pesticides. Where have all the bees gone? Uh, George, give us a website for, uh, for your organization. So um, we have a website. It is now almost uh, 20 years old, but it is uh, www, of course, niagarabeeway.com. All small case, etc. but you'll find us. And uh, we do quite a bit of research here in Niagara for the beekeepers. Now, is, is everyone now on board with the diagnosis of the problem that it is this particular insecticide that's responsible? I don't think you should say that. You run a great risk now in saying that an insecticide is responsible for anything. That's a, that's a statement, and that's a statement that can be used against a marketed product. So you have to be very aware because that is libelous. People are advertising the merits, and you're saying something negative, and that's opening up many doors. All right, got you loud and clear. Welcome to 2016 when a product now has the same rights as an individual. Isn't that a scary thought? When you, <laughs> when you start attacking something, you have to realize it does have some merits. It was a design chemical to do something. What we're talking about here in the other industries are the non-targeted effects. When you're in the bee industry, you have to face many layers of insecticide. This is not a news story for us. Many, many chemicals that have killed bees are now banned. Chemicals that were used to be good for us. Suddenly we found out non-targeted effects were not acceptable. Right. Now they're banned. So the same people who brought us this new neonicotinoid are on the same trajectory. And we're not advocating a ban. We're not, we're not those people at all. But we're just saying that we clearly understand now the effect of this. And now we are taking steps to mitigate our losses. So we have some happy thoughts here. Yeah, let's talk about, let's have some solutions here. Uh, obviously, you know, you, you had a bad year in 2005, 100% loss of your beehive, but here we are 2016, you're still in business. So obviously, some of those bees have come back. How did you do it? So we looked at, uh, with the major commercial beekeepers here in Niagara, so these are the guys who ship, uh, you know, uh, 17 truckloads, two men per truck, 560 uh, beehives per truck. So these people are very much married to the, the bee industry, and they're multi-generational like myself. So when we look at some of the solutions here, uh, we understand there's a problem. We're not going to argue whether it's a cell phone or somebody else or it's bad business practice or bad bee practice. We're going to keep our bees away from the neonicotinoids. So when those plants flower that have neonicotinoids or when those crops are sprayed, we divert our bees by feeding them a luxurious liquid that they love, and they can build their young with it. It's expensive for us, mm -hmm. but when we put this out there in the field, it diverts them for a week or so because no tree and no soybean or no corn pollen or any of those things that are contaminated with these neonicotinoids bloom for more than a week or 10 days. That's just an industrial plant. After 10 days of diversion into our feed areas, the young don't really get exposed to that much neonicotinoid. The result is that we've dropped mortality from 44%, which is our lowest, to 100%, which is our highest. Um, this year, we were 5%. Even in our grandfather's time, there was never a 5% loss. It's normally 15. We are, we are aware of losses. That would be normal. Not 50 and 100%. 
But we are aware every winter, winter kills some insects. We right. are aware of that. That's, right. that's a phenomenon. We can handle that. But we can't handle getting knocked out of business. So what we do now is we take our bees, and rather than leaving them in their winter sleeves, we refrigerate them all winter. We feed them at times when they would go to neonicotinoids. That allows us a controlled uptake for the bees where we are making smart decisions about how much of this chemical they're going to ingest. Right, right. That now means that we're in control of the situation, and we're really ducking the bullet. But we're ducking the bullet so well that rather than on a $3 million beekeeping operation, to lose 50% of your genetics, doesn't matter how you look at it, you just lost $1.5 million. Right, right. To only lose 5% when you can double every year means this is coming up here in 2016, genetically speaking from the bees, will be one of our best years ever. All right, Th that's great news. But let me ask you about this then. What happens, though, to the whole pollination process, which bees obviously are an integral part of, uh, if you are basically avoiding... Uh, you know the um, the uh, the blooms and so forth on various plants. The bees are are feeding on something that you're bringing in that's that's devoid of this this insecticide. Well, public public awareness is a big issue right now because it's the release of this chemical that furthers the problem. And the problem in Niagara, and I can't speak for everywhere, but in Niagara, we have two main seed suppliers, Clark and Pioneer Seeds, mm -hmm. excellent companies. I know the guys very well, very conscientious. But when you ask them how much of the neonicotinoid material they're putting on their seed coatings, you realize very quickly each one of them puts about 30,000 pounds out into the environment, but that's nothing compared to the urban release. Both Clark and Pioneer would put one truckload out. But if you did a survey right now of all of the products that are non-food producing, right. that are ornamental, lawn seed, Lawn, all of those products, pet supplies, pet shampoo, pet drops, all of those new systemic issues there. If you count the number of truckloads of that material in Niagara right now, it's six. So already, and the farmers only use this product in the springtime on the seed coating. Right. Sometimes they have a foliar spray, but that's a very, very small amount and only for a disaster. But we're, as urban people, on our pets and plants and roses and things like that, aphid killer, there are a number of products. As a matter of fact, there are now 560 retail products containing neonicotinoids. Farmers are not the problem for the release. It's urban people with pets. So we're swimming in this stuff. Well, we're starting to understand that now because we are testing the water everywhere and really trying to put a little pressure on each municipality. Before you get a well, you must pay the municipality for the right to take water into your house from that well. You, they will test it and tell you it's okay. But really, they only test for E. coli and chlorophyll content. They could be allowing field-grade chemicals at two parts per million, which is very, very small, right. of an insecticide going into your children. Why? Because your water was approved, it is bacteria-free. Mm. However, it carries a chemical wallop now that may not be something that you want to feed to your children. And it could be, you know, 20 years before, uh, I suppose, or longer, before someone actually starts to show the effects, if we're talking about a neurotoxin here. I mean, this is... This is, this, this is, a, this is all about the children. Right. This product is an embryonic mutagen. 
Those are scary words when you put them both in the same sentence. I'll say, I'll say. Listen, we so can... if you are a 10-year-old girl today and you're looking forward to eating your cornflakes and being big and strong, you have a right to Google how much neonicotinoid, I know trans fat, I know salt, I know sugar, I'm really watching my diet, how much neurotoxins in my cornflakes. That's the biggest problem right now and why I am so motivated. A high school here, Centennial High School, a bunch of kids got together and said, why can't we find out how much neonicotinoid, if it's so safe for us and so good for us, how come we can't know how much is in our cornflakes? It's in every bit of corn, right? Amazing, yeah. Why can't we? And now we notice that you old people are keeping this information away from us. Why? So they made a little video, and we helped them with sending our videographer and cleared it up a little bit. We put that on our website. It's called We Want to Know. Those are high school kids, and all they want to know is about if this stuff is so good, how much is it? Is it two? Is it 20? Is it 200? How much am I getting? Certainly in Japan now, they have patients who are being treated for this, and the only time they get this is from their food. And this uh, neurotoxin, how does it affect people? I mean, does it resemble things like, uh, like Parkinson's, like tremors? The and, biggest and... problem we have right now, if you had a dosage that was giving you some symptoms, none of our doctors know what those symptoms are. You could walk into your doctor's office here in Niagara, and they have no diagnostic tools, nor can they send you to a lab where you can pee in a cup or take blood or breathe into the tube or whatever it is to be able to tell you whether or not you have overdosed on this. Boy, where have we heard this before? It sounds like uh, the same deal with Lyme disease. They don't, know how to, they don't know how to diagnose and they don't know how to treat. You, can't, you cannot detect this. We had a hell of a time getting a lab. We now have a lab and we can test, but you know we are limited to 250 test sites here in Ontario for testing water and its content of the top four neonicotinoids. And not only that, now we're starting to scratch our heads because these products, when they degrade, they change into different substances, which are more lethal. Oh boy. And these substances like to join on to other chemicals that we've released in our environment, making a tertiary level or third level of things that you don't even want to know about. So we don't even have the capacity to even track those things now, but the primary chemistry is something that's in all of our food. George Scott is with us, a beekeeper for a quarter century, and uh, also an expert in chemical insecticides. Uh, it's amazing, isn't it, how um, you here you are, you're a beekeeper, and, and yet this has led you into this whole investigation uh, about how these insecticides inf affect children. So in this case, I guess the, the bees really are the, the canary in the coal mine, aren't they? Well, you know, if you're surrounded by farmers and they have healthy birds and bees all over the place, it's great. But if one day you walk out and all of a sudden the bees drop dead right in front of you, it's a good indicator species that maybe you should pack your suitcase and go visit your grandmother and bury. Yeah, indeed. Well, I I was asking you earlier. Um, so you're 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 limiting the bees' exposure uh, uh, to these uh, chlorinated um, nicotoids. Is that the the, the proper term? neo 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 nicotinoids nicotinoids nicotine killers. All right. So those particular products. Now we work with our neighbors. I live right here in an area where my neighbors are fabulous. Uh, Mennonite-based corn and soybean growers. They're very close to that. We communicate with them. We know what they're using. Yes, they are using neonicotinoids in some cases. And with those particular seeds, we know now all about that plant because we know our neighbor. 
because we work together, we know exactly when to put our feeders out and divert our bees away. Right. Or at least dilute their food intake by 50%. You know, we can dilute it. We can't stop them because they want that stuff. It's like bumming a cigarette. You know they're bad for you. But your buddy's got a full pack, and you're going to go and say, hey, buddy, can I have a butt? These this, this, are the same way. This question, it almost sounds, um, I don't know, flippant or like a first-world problem because we're talking about, you know, this horrible chemical, and it's affecting children, and it's a neurotoxin, but... My question is, if, if you're avoiding exposing the bees to these, all these wonderful you know, blossoms that we find in nature because they're, they're, they have this uh, insecticide, how does, how does that affect the, 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 the taste of the honey? Is the honey different, demonstrably different? Well, uh, the honey, the bees have a way of taking this out and metabolizing all the bad things. So they're only putting a fairly highly pure thing in there for their next generation. Most of that honey is going to their babies. Bees can suck up all of the insecticide in many things. One of the girls out of the hundred that are doing the evaporation, she'll suck up all of the pesticide and fly out and die. So they are actually removing to the best of their ability all of those things that would affect their young because that's where that honey's going. So they have a built-in thing. Unfortunately, when they start having a lot of insecticide, many of the girls need to commit suicide here to protect the rest of the girls who will stay behind. That's remarkable. All right, we'll take another time out. George Scott is uh, with us. Give us the website again, George. Yeah, it's uh, www.niagarabeeway.com. Have a look at some of the things we do in the birding area. All right. We will uh, be back with this conversation in mere moments. Stay with us. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Fasten your seatbelt. And put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with George Scott, beekeeper and expert in chemical insecticides. And the website is niagarabeeway.com, niagarabeeway.com. Uh, um, so what is your... Um, I mean, what is what is going on in sort of the, the political arena uh, now? Are, are are we are we likely to see you know legislation? Let's say here in Ontario, are there other jurisdictions that are that are um, trying to do something about this at, at, again at the legislative level? Well, that's a big discussion. This is federally approved. There are provincial suits for damages. There are a number of municipal issues and other municipalities who have banned it. There are some regions who have said, no, we are not even having a specification on our winter de-icing fluid, even though it's beet juice driven and highly contaminated with neonicotinoids, more so than even any farmer would use on his crop. It's a residual chemical, and they're spraying it out there, but many municipalities won't even put a specification on that because this is too new a thought line. They haven't gotten their minds around that yet. The product is new. Even uh, bee juice in your area sprayed on your roads, and it's a great uh, 
product for saving lives. I'm not saying that's wrong at all. But there are substitutes, and there should be a specification on that. Many municipalities in the U.S. are requesting bans. From Niagara B-Way's viewpoint, we're not interested in banning any chemicals at all. But we are interested in realistically looking at their life cycle and how does it affect us here in Niagara, and is it good indeed for our farmers? And just because our farmers are using it doesn't mean that we can amplify that usage times six because we want to control aphids on our roses or ticks on our dogs or whatever it is. Right. Give us a sense of how vital bees are uh, to the food supply when it comes to fruits and vegetables. Well, you know, you're talking about things that, uh, let's say that you're a blueberry guy, right? You make blueberries, and your blueberries without any bees can make $4,000 an acre, and you got got 1,000 acres. You're a rich guy from blueberries. $4,000 an acre. You put bees out there, and you're making $12,000 an acre. Because they improve the yield bees that much. Bees go to every flower, and mm. every flower is pollinated and makes a blueberry. The wind can pollinate blueberries. You can do it without bees, but bees are efficient. That's the beauty of the honeybee. He's so efficient. He goes on the cherry tree and he pollinates every possible site. Oh, is that right? Interesting. That's why the yield goes way up because the wind gets about 20% of the sites. The bees get them all. Early blossoms, mid-range blossoms, and late blossoms. doesn't depend on the wind. Those bees are very frequent in there, and they get them all. They're very efficient. That's why people love honeybees. It maximizes what a plant can do based on its flowers. That's fascinating. So let me just repeat that. So wind alone will will provide pollination for 20% of the blossoms on, let's say, a blueberry bush. Yeah, depending on cherry trees or peach trees or whatever you need pollination services for, you pay for those because it makes more money for you. Right. You're increasing the yield five times. Yes. You know, it is a it is straight revenue. Yes, you might have to buy more packaging because you've got more peaches or more apples. But if you don't buy bees, you'll find that the trees really do suffer. The bees do a lot more than just pollinate. They tend to tend the tree. Now, while all this is going on with the bee population, anecdotally, I have no scientific data here, but anecdotally, I would say that, that there, are, there seems to be a lot more wasps uh, and hornets around. Well, they're the enemy of the honeybee. They, now that the honeybees are weak and can't defend themselves, the meat eaters come in. Yellow jackets and all those things that sting your kids when they're, up, they're running on the lot, the things that live in the ground. Right, right. You know, bees like to live up high in trees or in the bee boxes. But all of those little meat eaters that are wasps and hornets, of which there are 114 here in Niagara that are not honeybees, will sting you if you sit on them. They are ornery. All of those things are the, really the enemy of the beekeeper. Ah, okay. the, the yellow jacket will kill a colony by going after its young and pulling the larvae right out and eating them all and killing every honeybee on their way in. So we don't like yellow jackets, and nor do you. I would call them a pest. Interesting. Okay, so they're, um, they're basically uh, filling the vacuum that's being left by the, uh, the decimation of the bee population. I would say that they're being decimated at another level. We're just not noticing it because we don't make any money from them. If their population dropped by 50% per year, would we ever really notice? In the bees, we control the imports and the registered numbers of beehives every year. You have to register your numbers. The only issue with that statistic and where it's really been used and misused is that when they say, 
honeybee hives are really on the increase. Look at here's the registered ones in October. Add to that the new imports here in March, and that's a big number. The numbers shouldn't be added together. They should be subtracted from one another because no beekeeper would ever import a bee into Niagara unless all his bees are died. Got it. Great point. All right, we'll take a time out, come back. One final segment remains. George Scott, beekeeper, niagarabeeway.com. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And we are back on The Conspiracy Show with George Scott a beekeeper, expert in chemical insecticides from Niagara, the Niagara region of Ontario, and um, yes, huge problems uh, facing uh, the bee population. We started to take note in 2005. We seem to have identified uh, part of the problem, the culprit, Uh, but some good news. And now, just uh, regale us again on what you're doing. For those joining us uh, late, George, how have you uh, been successful in, in uh, um, ameliorating this problem? Okay, so the biggest issue here is losses for a beekeeper. A beekeeper will invest X number of dollars into his genetics, so he'll have 100,000 colonies, you know, at X number of dollars each. If 50% of those colonies die, he's lost 50% of that 100,000. What, what we try to do is we try to prevent those losses. So really stepping up to not fight anybody, it's useless to fight the chemical companies, it's useless to fight the government or bring them in or have more inspection, but let's just avoid the problem. That was the decision we made here in Niagara. How could we take active steps to make sure that our girls, our little bees, never got into the problem? Diverting them with food that they really love and is very nourishing means that it costs us a lot more money to maintain our bees because when the plants blossom that have various things that have neonicotinoids in them, we're heavily feeding our bees. They don't get as big a dose. The young that are coming in the next generation don't get as big a dose, and that has reduced our mortality significantly by a factor. What used to be 50 is now 5. These are all good, good, good words, but that helps because all of our neighbors here who are also grain farmers and beekeepers work together for these solutions. We're not fighting or saying anybody's bad. We're just saying we've got a problem. How do we solve it together? Now, this is a made-in-Niagara solution, correct? I mean, you uh, and your colleagues developed this solution? No, we have got a number of wonderful bee solutions here on the varroa mite, the big deadly parasite. Uh, We've got four years of tremendous success in fighting that might off. We publish that. Uh, we are open to peer review. Other universities and other countries have picked up our research from Niagara, and they are doing similar studies and adding to our body of knowledge on how to control us. We put an insect into our bees. That insect goes on guard and kills the parasite without hurting the bees in any way, shape, or form. Fascinating. We got that from the grain growers. It's the insect that they put into the grain silos to eat out the things that eat grain. 
These are little meat eaters. They're not interested in eating our grain. And they are food-grade. They are food-grade approved insects, if you can believe that. And so you're in your, how are you getting those insects inside the bees? Oh, we have a whole process. Uh, natural insect control produces these insects in large quantities. We get them to over 137 beekeepers who are our peer reviews, who are reproducing the same experiments we're doing here. Um, after four years, there's a tremendous amount of success. This is very organic. This is using an insect to get rid of a Chinese parasitic mite that's attacking our honeybees. And, but how do you get that meat, little meat-eating insect inside the bee? We uh, sprinkle it across the top of the hive. We open the hive up and sprinkle it across the top of the hive with a little bit of media, and it like, looks like vermiculite. And what happens is these little bugs run all around inside the beehive with the bees, but their primary target is the varomite. Every time they run into one, they just take a bite out of it. All right. So... Um, you know, this is amazing, the, the work that you're doing down there in Niagara with bees. You should have, it should be like the, the worldwide capital of beekeeping in Niagara. It is, the, it is the center and has been the center in Canada for many years. It's just that our big beekeepers are quite silent guys. You know, in many cases, they've hired me to speak about this issue because I've worked for a chemical company for many years. I've run the bacteriological division of that chemical, so telling me that a bacteria is killing the bees or that your cell phones are killing the bees when it's really a chemical doesn't get past me. <laughs> it doesn't, it, you know, I, I am from this industry. Right. But right. there are very few people with 25 years' experience in beekeeping and president of a petrochemical company. You don't find that mix very well, and, and this really is part of my karmic payback. <laughs> Interesting. Interestingly put, your karmic payback. I mean, do you really do you feel remorse and responsible? Well, you know, all my life I have been a, a formaldehyde and asphalt for road paving kind of salesperson. Mm -hmm. And in that, uh, we have tried to move our corporations into more friendly earth science things. And up to the point now where I look at my future next 10 years, I'd like to immerse myself in beekeeping, which is something that's multi-generational for us and very pleasing for me. I, I like it. It's profitable. Um, we do it right here. So with all, and we have lots of friends who do it, so it's a very good decision for me to go more further into beekeeping. That's my plan. It's a, it's a fascinating craft. Um, how long is it, how, when did man first, can I use the term domesticate bees? 5,400 years we've been doing it. Egyptians or their precursors started it, weaving reeds together and jamming the bees in there until they made honey and then knocked the thing over and take their honey. That's 5,400 years ago, the first recorded, domesticated bee. It's come a long way because we put a little math on it there with a guy named Langstroth. But uh, other than that, it has not really progressed much until all of a sudden we're starting to look at losing them and what are we learning about and how can we mitigate our losses. So we've learned a lot in the last 10 years about bees that they haven't known for hundreds of years. And in terms of handling bees... Um, I mean, we see beekeepers handling them. Uh, they're wearing, like, a bee beard and so forth. They seem to be, if treated properly, incredibly docile a creature. Or is that when you smoke them? No, no. At different times, they have different behavior. So man has learned how to manipulate the bee to make 
and take his surplus honey. So we have learned how to do that. At certain times when the bees are not defending, they're not defending their young, they're not defending their food, they're not defending their home, um, they can be treated with a hormone that says, here, please come and touch me, I'm the queen. You put such a hormone on your face and you could have 60,000 bees forming a beard on your face because they're responding to a hormone. They're not defending, they don't sting, they've come to see the queen. Ah, interesting. So that hormone is what drove that. That's a neat trick of beekeepers when you have a swarm of bees around to have them all come out and go on your face because it makes you look very brave, but really you have subdued them by a command saying, come to me, I am your queen. You see, we're getting some uh, amazing inside baseball information here. Um, And what is the difference between uh, a domesticated bee and a a honeybee that we would find out in, in the wild? In Niagara, all the honeybees here came from Europe. So what we're finding now along the Niagara Beeway, because this is our, one of our oldest communities in Canada, the old cities of Thorold and St. Catharines, where you have 200-year-old churches, they're some of the oldest buildings. Well, they've had bees in there for 190 years. And some of these bees we're noticing that they are very much different than the current domestic bee-in-a-box, the, the commercial standard. Right. Um, they're nasty little bees. They have bad behavior. They've been bred. However, they don't seem to be affected by many of the diseases. So the and those bees have not been imported into Canada since the 1920s, before the first or second world war. There's no record of them. These are escapees that have survived in Niagara. We call them Niagara Queens. We search for them. Our uh, free response program means that we get queens in swarms from all across Niagara. We have several hives right now this year of that little black bee that lived in northern Italy and southern Austria. And that bee there has been replaced by a super bee now who makes more honey, more honey, more honey. But this old bee is only found here now. And you're saying it's more aggressive? It's a little bit more aggressive, only when you stick your hand in there, they'll, they'll send the Imperial Guard right away walking. The, the Imperial Guard, I love that. Yeah, the that. guards that are the guards of the nest. The, the ones that are ventilators won't come out to defend. The Imperial Guard is what the Queen says when you look like a bear and you're standing at the front and a scout comes back and says, hey, there's a thing that looks like a bear out there, send out the Imperial Guard. They're out there to sting you. She, she gave the command for some bees to sting and not all. And their language is remarkable, this little dance that they do. Uh, one dance says, you know, there, is, there are, there are uh, peach blossoms two kilometers this way, and another dance means what? There's a bear out there? Well, we call that sign language, first mm-hmm. of all. So we think we're pretty smart because you can write everything down about how to build an engine, and you can die and your predecessors can come and read that information and know how to build an engine because you wrote it down so perfectly. Right. Well, bees have sign language. In the hive where it's dark, they do that little shake that's a cherry tree two and a half kilometers, turn left at 100 kilometers, and there it is. And they get that information tactile, right? That's a shaking little dance. Right. Everybody knows where that cherry tree is because of the symbols. So that's like sign language, hand signs for people who are deaf. However, on every cell that's capped over with wax, 
they contain different things from a bee. When a beekeeper opens it up and takes all the honey out, he takes it all out in one shot. Right. But some of that honey is for parties only, for winter only, for the young when they have diarrhea. This is medicine. This is pollen. Here are young. Each one wow. of those caps has a type of braille on it that the bees can read and they understand what it is, even though it's sealed beyond their detection, in wax. So not only do they have hand sign, but they have writing. But wait a second here. The queen releases a hormone. It's hot in here, more ventilation. They can communicate by smell, and all of them start fanning more because they want to bring the temperature down. The queen commanded them by hormone. Also, they have antenna. Mm -hmm. The antenna go into the biggest part of their brain, even though the eyes create a big chunk of their brain. We have no idea how they are using their antenna. That's for Wi-Fi. That's for frequency <laughs> reception. We're not, we're not even there yet because we don't even know what they're doing with that. Absolutely remarkable creatures. They are absolute. And now that we're losing them, we are understanding more and more and more and more about them. And really, whatever help we can get to further our research in this and in a kind of friendly, non-combative way, we're not fighting the grain growers. They're our neighbors. Why would we fight them? We're not fighting the pesticide manufacturers. We need them now and 20 years from now. Exactly. We, you know, right. we want to find the right answer to being able to survive and go on to 2017. Well, I think you're taking the, ex the, the correct uh, path here because, as you know, uh, honey gets more flies than vinegar. That's exactly right. That is a very mature view, but very hard to implement when sometimes you are outraged by things and you want to pick up an axe and swing it. Well, and it's very appropriate when we're talking about uh, bees. George Scott, uh, once again, the website. www.niagrabeeway.com Niagrabeeway.com Now, incidentally, that video that the, um, uh, the students at, was it Centennial High School? Yes. Uh, they put together. Uh, is that available on the, on the website? It's on the website. It's called We Want to Know. Okay. So if you go on the video and it says We Want to Know, click on that. It's about two minutes long, and those kids, I think, are quite serious about the fact that they know how to tie their tie at Thanksgiving without asking anybody but Google. <laughs> All right. George, I have enjoyed this conversation immensely. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time and the interest. I appreciate it. George Scott. All right, NiagaraBeeway.com. My website, strangeplanet.ca. That's your portal to this radio program. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. Serrett, S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T. And as always, follow the truth.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. A hearty how-do. To all of those of you listening in on the flagship station here, Zoomer Radio in the Liberty Village of Toronto, 50,000 watts of peace and love. And a hi to those of you listening in on one of our growing list of affiliates. Those, of course, catching us on the podcast, uh, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, TalkZone.com. Those, of course, listening in on the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app. Uh, Both of those, by the way, great, great uh, apps uh, and both free downloads from Google Play and iTunes, Zoomer Radio and the Conspiracy Show app. Uh, wherever and however you're listening, I bid thee welcome and I thank you for your fine company. Uh, investigative journalist John Rappaport, the founder of No More Fake News, is standing by in sunny Southern California to talk about, uh, well, a whole uh, smorgasbord, GMOs, uh, something John calls mind control through the information flicker effect. We'll also talk vaccines, uh, Brexit, uh, whatever else. Else we can fit in. Uh, let me remind you uh, that there is no HOA tonight, no hangout, hangout on air. We will resume streaming this radio program live on YouTube uh, July 24th when my intrepid producer Albert returns. So no HOA, uh, but we will resume streaming live on YouTube July 24th. Uh, season four, just a reminder, season four of The Conspiracy Show now, now airing across Canada on Vision TV Monday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, And incidentally, for my American listeners, uh, Seasons 1, 2, and 3 available in the U.S. on Hulu. Uh, You know, there is so much uh, going on right now, it almost makes your head spin. And, of course, so much of what we get from what we like to call the MSM, the mainstream media, is manufactured, a manufactured reality. Uh, A recent poll, I think it was back in April, in the United States found, get this, nearly 70% of Americans, and I'm guessing it's a similar number up here, 70% of Americans, let's call them North Americans, do not trust the mainstream media. Uh, No surprise there for many of us. And increasingly, of course, people now are getting their information from alternative sources, independent journalists. And when I say independent journalists, I'm not talking about a group that has come to be called, you know, the citizen journalists. These are individuals that really have no training and anyone... Uh, that knows, you know, how to to to, to make a website, uh, you know, can get out there and spout anything they'd like. I'm talking about highly trained, uh, ethical, credentialed men and women 
who left the MSM out of frustration, um, who found the MSM uh, was so corrupt, so biased, they could no longer function there. They couldn't, they had to leave. And now they, uh, they write books, they make documentary films, they lecture, they, they publish online, they write blogs. One such is a real favorite of mine in this program, uh, John Rappaport. Uh, you can read his frequent reports at a terrific website, nomorefakenews.com. He's worked as a freelance investigative reporter for over 30 years, the author of three explosive collections, The Matrix Revealed, Exit from the Matrix, and Power Outside the Matrix. He's written articles on politics, health, media, culture, and art for LA Weekly, Spin Magazine, Stern, Village Voice, Nexus, CBS Health Watch, and other newspapers and magazines in the U.S. and Europe. And he has lectured extensively all over the U.S. on the question, who runs the world and what can we do about it? Since 2000, John has operated largely away from the mainstream because, as he puts it, my research was not friendly to the conventional media, quote, end quote. And over the last 30 years, his independent research has encompassed such areas as deep politics, conspiracies, alternative health, the potential of the human imagination, mind control, the medical cartel, symbology and solutions to the takeover of the planet by hidden elites. He maintains a consulting practice for private clients, the purpose of which is the expansion of personal creative power. And to boot, he's a painter as well. His, been, his work has been shown in galleries in L.A. and New York, and his poetry has been published by the Massachusetts Review. A graduate of Amherst College with a B.A. in philosophy, he lives with his lovely wife, Laura, in San Diego. John Rappaport, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Uh, very good. Good to be here, Richard. Great to have you back. Um, so much to talk about. Um, I want to talk about uh, uh, Brexit, of course. Uh, several weeks ago, we had the uh, uh, the big vote, which caught... Well, it's funny, you know, the mainstream media, here we go again. They say, wow, we didn't see this coming. Um, and it, mind you, it was a, it was a fairly tight uh, race, uh, about four percentage points. But um, now uh, Great Britain uh, poised. It's going to be a long, messy divorce, no doubt. But they're going to leave... Uh, the EU. Your thoughts? Lots of thoughts on this. Of course, uh, major media is screaming. Loud protests. How could they have done this? They're wrecking the global economy. They have no idea what they just did in order you know, to get out of the uh, European Union, etc., etc., etc. It's as if they built this gigantic structure in Europe, this <laughs> incredible bureaucracy of gigantic proportions overseeing all the member countries, and they just assumed that no one would ever want to leave. You know, that's verboten. Mm. I mean, the idea that you could decide to leave is just unthinkable. In other words, the countries now become slaves. Right. It's like the okay, Hotel California. We, you can check in, but you can never leave. Exactly. So when it happens, it's just, you know, in their view, absolutely preposterous and chaos will result and so forth. How could you have been so stupid? But actually, the way it seems to be shaking out, and uh, one never knows uh, what other stories will crop up or evidence, people just said, 
we're fed up. We don't like this arrangement. We want to get out of the marriage. And so we will. And, of course, it was a very close vote, but that's the way it swung. And uh, now the divorce happens. Will take possibly two years unless the EU just says get out now. I see it as decentralization of power. Mm. And that's a phrase, if people will take notice, that used to be a currency for activists of all stripes. Yeah. Uh, think, who recognize. Act you know, locally, think globally. Act locally, think globally. Yeah. Who, who recognized that the powers that be were extending their realm in a very dangerous way over the whole planet, sometimes called globalism, and that something needed to be done about it. And what needed to be done was power had to flow back down to where it originates with the people exactly. as opposed to the institutions and structures. But that phrase has been rubbed out of media as people will notice when they think about it and re try to remember the last time they saw it in any significant way in any major media article or broadcast. But now it's a crime. Hmm. Can't decentralize. Yes, it's all, now it's xenophobia. Exactly. If you decide you want out, then you're some kind of a criminal. So now we're really seeing the paradigm of the police state versus the people, because that's the hallmark. You can't leave. You can't get out. You're here for good. How dare you try? That automatically brands you as a criminal if you try that. Right. So that's what I'm seeing here. This is the way the whole thing is being positioned and shaped by media. And of course, there's a great deal of gloss that's been laid on all this. Socialism is the most wonderful system ever devised, and countries flourish under it, and the EU is a, a wonderful illustration of that, and the whole purpose of this uh, gigantic faceless bureaucracy is to promote equality among all people, and this is moving us toward uh, the utopia, and we're all together in this, brothers and sisters, et cetera, et cetera. This is the cover story that's been used. It's kind of a religious cover story. Indeed, indeed. You know what's interesting, John, when they looked at the, the, the breakdown of the vote, and, and most young people uh, voted to stay uh, inside the, um, the EU, uh, despite the fact that it is not... Uh, well, as uh, as uh, Nigel Farage, the um, a bit of a political hero of mine, the uh, the leader of the UKIP party, uh, put it, uh, it's not um, uh, it's not undemocratic. The EU, it's anti-democratic, and, and despite and the influence of big corporations and so forth, you had young people voting as a block to stay in the EU, and yet those same young people are the ones that we see wearing the masks, the professional protesters who show up at the WTO meetings, the World Trade Organization meetings, and the G20 summits, and are the same people that are behind all of those things are behind the EU. So on the one hand, they're protesting over here, and on the other hand, I mean, I guess that's a witness to the, the brainwashing that's going on in our colleges and universities. I'm just going to read you a piece 
a paragraph out of one of my articles. What a monstrous joke it is that the young in Britain voted to remain in the EU, which, of course, is a right arm of globalist forces. Mm. The same young yammer and protest against globalism, but because they're absolutely clueless, they want to remain in the EU. The young turned into useless products of the education system. There you go. I mean, yes, this is a ridiculous uh, contradiction. And these young voters who wanted to stay in the EU are completely unaware of it. They just don't see it. They can't look from one arm to the other and recognize the connection. And there you have it. The other thing I think that somebody had a very uh, interesting tweet today, uh, and I was looking for it earlier. I can't find it now. Whoever is responsible, I I give full credit, but this is not mine. But what they said was this, you know, this, this, uh, this vote is an illustration that culture trumps politics. What do you think? I think so. I think so. Especially when the culture is so invasive and intrusive, as in, this is what we all believe now, and you have to believe it too. Hmm. There is no room for dissent. For example, if you just raise the question in Europe about the effects of the massive waves of migration sweeping over the continent, if you just ask for a rational discussion of those effects, and you're looking for evidence, actual evidence, to see what's going on, then you are branded all sorts of horrible things. Oh, you're worse than Hitler. Yeah, right away. Worse than Hitler. (laughs) So you can't question that. That's culture. I mean, it's political, but it's really culture, because the people who are questioning it, who don't want it, they're thinking of the place where they live. Uh, they're thinking of what's happening to the place where they live. Right. They're seeing certain things going on that uh, are indeed shocking, and they don't want it to continue. I think, yeah, I think that's what the, 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 the author of the tweet was referring to, that in terms of the triumph of the vote is, a, is proof that culture, and that is, in other words, our, our, our need for our own identity for identity that that's that trumps politics and look at the fact that you know the vote cut across all political parties and so forth for those who wanted leave labor pc ukip some liberals so uh, anyway we'll come back and discuss uh, uh, more with john rapaport investigative reporter no more fake news.com stay with us here on the conspiracy show take a look around what do you really see this is where you can tell all about it The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. In a democracy... We elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. 
We are back with investigative reporter John Rappaport and uh, the website nomorefakenews.com. How do people get a hold of the, uh, the three editions of the Matrix series, John? Well, they just go to No More Fake News, and they'll see uh, links where they can read about the contents of uh, each collection, and if they want to order it, they can. There are articles that I have been publishing pretty much every day for the last 15 years, and they can also sign up for the uh, email list to get articles in their email box. And just give us a sense what what, what those, these are like CD-ROMs, right, the, the, these uh, matrix Well, the, yeah, it's all digital. Uh, some text, a, a great deal of audio, huge amounts of material that I've uh, put together over the last 10 years or so. Uh, for example, in The Matrix Revealed, there's a great deal of deep information about mind control, and not just the familiar themes and strategies and so forth, but actual interviews with, uh, in one case, a former insider, a propaganda, retired propaganda operative quite high up, who finally decided that he had had enough. And so in dozens of interviews with him, he lays out the actual way that propaganda is done, uh, the sources, the way it is uh, played about and laid upon the public, and the psychological apparatus that uh, underpins it. In other words, from studies of people's reactions, from studies of the way people think, from studies of the way that uh, people respond to uh, all sorts of influences that uh, one would not ordinarily think about, such as rhythm and uh, tone of voice and pacing, space, time itself. Uh, these are deep studies that are not made public. Propaganda is formed with the intent of ruling over the mind. And so that's just one illustration. Many, many text interviews with him that cover really the whole waterfront in a way that uh, I've never seen before on the subject of mind control. So that's just one example. Well, and and um, further to that, one of your recent uh, dispatches at nomorefakenews.com um, is uh, about what you call mind control through the information flicker effect. What do you mean by the information flicker effect? In that particular article, I used the example of the Sandy Hook shooting, but you could use many, many events as examples. Orlando. Orlando, sure. The point of it is that... When an event like that takes place, first of all, all the information comes from official sources. It doesn't matter how many, quote, reporters in the field are, are uh, talking to the anchor in the studio, or even if the anchor uh, deigns to show up himself and stand on a hill overlooking the town and so forth and so on. No actual reporting is taking place, zero. All of the information is coming from the police, from the FBI, the government official sources. And you will see as this happens that certain storylines develop and then they disappear. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, we caught a shooter in the woods. Right. Uh, 
really? Well, uh, stay tuned here. We've got to hear what happened. Oh, mm-hmm. Never hear about it again. We've got somebody prone down on the ground in front of the school. Wow, who is that? Is that the same guy who was in the woods? We don't know. The story comes. It disappears. It's never heard from again. Uh, there were three weapons in the trunk of the car of the shooter. No, there was one. It was this kind of weapon. No, it was that kind of weapon. Uh, the shooter's uh, father was killed in New Jersey. What? No, it wasn't the father in New Jersey. It was the mother in Connecticut. What? How did, how did this happen? But the point is that such amounts of cognitive dissonance are created in the viewing audience with these little threads right. that start and go nowhere that the only option is you either turn it off or you surrender to the anchor who is delivering the story. The high priest. The high priest. If you surrender to him or her, you are now inside the mind control apparatus. You just accept everything. You no longer ask questions because every time you ask one of these questions, what happened to that? Uh, bit and that storyline that disappeared, you're now outside the flow. And people are very much addicted to story. They want to have story. They want to follow the story. Right. And, and the narrative so they, has to make sense for us. Otherwise, I mean, uh, you know, our reality gets turned upside down. So we want exactly. to stay in that flow just to, to maintain our sanity. Exactly. But of course, it's completely insane, but it's looked at as sanity. So that's what happens to the overwhelming majority of viewers they just accept the story because in their tremendous frustration at these little storylines that appear tantalize and then disappear they experience such confusion and uh, cognitive dissonance that they see no other option they just say well i'm just going to have to surrender and go along and right. that's what they do survival well, mechanism this is an enormously effective method of controlling people's minds so then what is um what are you saying here that a lot of these loose threads uh these early reports another example you know we talk about uh, john kennedy jr we, we, the early reports was that it you know the there was there was no uh, the, the, uh, no, no clouds in the sky. It was a beautiful day for a plane ride. Uh, and then the next thing we hear, it was horrible weather. Uh, you know, with Oswald, uh, what did they find at the, on the sixth floor? It was a Mauser. No, it was a, it was the humanitarian rifle. Are you saying that these false leads or these these threads that go nowhere are manufactured, or are they the 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 truths that get buried and forgotten? I'd say it's a mix of the two. Some are manufactured, some are true, that are abandoned. But in either case, what the the broadcaster, the high priest, as you say, the anchor, does with all of this is he moves along as if it doesn't matter, as if there is no contradiction involved here at all, as if there is nothing to really inquire about or investigate beyond what he's saying. And that's how he makes the big paycheck, because he knows how to do that. He's a storyteller. He's an actor. And he's good at it. I mean, we're talking now about, say, in America, the, the head national news anchors. They're very good at doing this kind of seamless storytelling that can overlook 
myriad contradictions and pretend that they never happened, they were never there, and just roll right along and the audience follows. So, yes, some of these little threads are manufactured on purpose to go nowhere. Others are the beginning of truth that is then dropped like a stone and never referred to again. But either way, the anchor knows how to deal with it in order to create this hypnotic effect on the audience. As as you were describing that, John, I was thinking of this little-known local reporter in Dallas, Texas, uh, who on November the 22nd or shortly thereafter was asked to... um, well, it was after November 22nd. It was He was asked to comment on the Zapruder film, and here we, we have the voice of Dan Rather telling us, uh, despite what our eyes see, that John Kennedy's head is moving forward after the fatal headshot, not backwards, as our eyes are telling us. And what happens to Dan Rather? Uh, I mean, he's catapulted uh, to, the, to the top and becomes, of course, the CBS uh, anchor after the uh, retirement of Walter Cronkite. Exactly. That's exactly that kind of thing. I'll tell you another story. Uh, Try to boil it down here. Talk about cognitive dissonance. In the summer of 2009, late in the summer, during the so-called swine flu epidemic, in the U.S., the Centers for Disease Control was saying there was something on the order of 10,000 cases of swine flu in America, and it was spreading and so forth and so on. So a lone reporter for CBS News, to my mind, the only investigative reporter they had, Cheryl Atkinson, Mm -hmm. she discovered that, in fact, the Centers for Disease Control had stopped counting the number of swine flu cases in America. I mean, this was their job to count and to report. This was their main job, and they just stopped cold. And they didn't tell anyone that they stopped. So she decided to find out why, and what she discovered was that of all the blood samples, and there were many, 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 from the most likely swine flu patients and diagnosed swine flu patients that had been sent to laboratories all over America, the overwhelming majority were coming back with no trace of swine flu or any other kind of flu. Mm. So, in other words, there was a huge hoax going on, of which the CDC was completely aware. And I interviewed her about this, and she said that her editor thought it was the most original story on the whole so-called epidemic that he had seen, and they proceeded to try to get it on television after they published it, and they did, on the CBS News website. And suddenly they ran into a brick wall. There was no possible way that this scandal, this gigantic hoax, was going to be revealed on the nightly CBS News. No matter what they did, nothing. About three weeks later, the Centers for Disease Control, who was obviously in a panic because they were going to be exposed on all fronts, you know, they're saying there are thousands of these cases and they have absolutely no evidence. The whole so-called epidemic was a complete dud. And that was the last thing they were going to confess to. So they decided to double down. And they said that their newest estimate was that in the U.S. there were 22 million cases of swine flu. 22 million. Oh, my. And I've had the quote. I've seen the quote. I've published the quote and the source, WebMD. 
so there you have cognitive dissonance of an enormous degree and you have a thread that started out and was completely abandoned never to appear again no other major news outlet picked up Cheryl Atkinson's work and reported on it or tried to extend it or investigate to see you know who are the real guilty parties here who are the names what did they do how did they cover this all up it just disappeared completely as if it had never happened and the news just rolled on with the same old stories about swine flu and it was just paved over completely Sounds familiar, and uh, being replayed again right now. This time, it's the Zika virus. Uh, we'll um, uh, let me just ask my my producer, Damien. How much time do we have before our next break? Again, we got a minute. Okay, well, let's take a time out now, uh, and then we come back. We'll get an update on uh, the Zika virus. And uh, my gosh, I mean, uh, poor Brazil hosting the uh, the Olympics this year, just getting hammered, hammered uh, by all these news reports about uh, Zika. How much truth uh, is there to it? We'll find out. John Rappaport, no more fake news.com investigative reporter with me here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416 360 0740 or toll free at 1 866 740 4740. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. Richard Serrett with you. John Rappaport on the line from beautiful San Diego and, of course, the, uh, the founder director of No More Fake News.com. And, um, uh, John, again, the uh, the Matrix series. Uh, how do people get um, there? There are three of them. How do people get those? Just go to my website, nomorefakenews.com. You'll see the links and uh, explanations of what is in each collection, and you can order them. All right. Uh, let's get an update on uh, on the Zika virus. So now we're told that there are a number of cases of of uh, uh, babies uh, with. This uh, form of, I guess, encephalitis that has been caused by, they, they say, the CDC says, is, is Zika. And, of course, we're all familiar now with what's going down, on down in Brazil. Uh, they are slated to host the Olympics very soon and um, not going so well for them down there. People are no. frightened. So what's, what's the latest? What do you hear? What do you know on, on the Zika virus? Okay. Well. Let me start at the beginning and just try to bring everybody up to speed quickly. Originally, the story broke out of Brazil. Look, we've seen a tremendous upsurge in cases of microcephaly, which means in babies, they are born with much smaller heads and brain damage. So on the heels of this story, immediately, we know the cause. The cause is the Zika virus. Nobody's ever heard of this before, but you do a little research and you discover that it was discovered in 1947, never known to cause anything. Mild, transient illness, no treatment necessary. 
it's already in many places around the world, India, other places. But all of a sudden now it's being blamed for this. And this is over 4,000 cases suddenly cropping up in Brazil of babies born with this severe, tragic birth defect. So because I've covered these kinds of stories many times with different so-called epidemics, I knew where to look, and so I began to see, okay, what's the research really on this? And as of now, the latest figures I've been able to find out of Brazil confirmed cases of microcephaly, not way over 4,000, but 854 in the entire country. And of these, in only 97 cases has there been discovered any trace whatsoever of the Zika virus. Now, what people have to understand is that when researchers are looking to say, this virus causes that condition, the first thing they have to be able to do is find the virus in all cases of the condition or overwhelmingly most cases of the condition. In order to establish causation. In order to establish causation. If they can't do that, they say, that was a dud, we go back to the drawing boards and we look for other causes. But they didn't do that. And of course, the World Health Organization immediately muscled into Brazil and articles began to appear, Zika virus connected to microcephaly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, pregnant women at risk all over the world huge scaremongering, don't get pregnant, uh, postpone your pregnancy for three years. In Central and South American countries where they severely limit abortion or make it completely illegal, uh, companies began to spring up with boats taking women, pregnant women, outside the three-mile limit into international waters and giving them abortion. That is, as far as I know, still taking place. So the fear factor was gigantic, and it still is. And yet, there is no credible evidence whatsoever that this virus has anything to do with this birth defect. That's the long and the short of it. And again, uh, give us those numbers. Confirmed cases... Of this 854. 854 cases of this, this birth defect. And of those, they say they have found some trace of the Zika virus in 97 cases. So just around, what, maybe 12% of the cases. Yeah, I mean, you know, every honest researcher will tell you this is counter-evidence. This proves that that virus is not the cause. Remarkable, and in 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 a population of Brazil, I don't I don't have the figure in front of me. I'm guessing what maybe 150 million people in Brazil. Maybe uh, it is very large, however, and yeah. diverse. And by the way, it is the biggest user of pesticides in the world of any country. <sighs> and many of those pesticides uh, are banned in other countries because they are too toxic but they are used in Brazil. Neurotoxins, I gotta jump in here, John. We'll take a time out, we'll come back and continue. No more fake news. Director John Rappaport here on The Conspiracy Show. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, 
Call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. John Rappaport stays with us. No more fake news.com. And uh, John, before the break, we were talking about uh, the Zika virus in Brazil and, uh, you know, the small number of confirmed, um, like, well, it's not, we don't want to minimize it. I mean, 800 and, you know, almost 900 uh, cases of this uh, birth defect where children are born with very small heads. Uh, but of those, just over 10%, um, there was a trace of, of the Zika virus. So you're saying far from, from providing evidence or proof that Zika is causing this birth defect, it's actually the opposite. It proves that Zika is not causing it. There is no causation, no correlation. Um, now, you were mentioning, though, that in Brazil, um, the high use of uh, uh, pesticides. Now, were these, were these clusters of, were there clusters of this particular birth defect found uh, in and around, for example, plants that produce this insecticide? Well, we're talking about spraying of pesticides and gigantic corporations that manufacture the pesticides. So the answer to that is yes. In the general northeast area, they certainly use pesticides. And not only that, but a group of uh, dissident Brazilian doctors some months ago revealed that the government had put something called a larvicide into water supplies in various places in the country, did not announce it, just did it. And, of course, that's a pesticide. It kills the larvae of mosquitoes that supposedly deliver the Zika virus to people when they bite them. Right. And so these doctors, a a large group of them, said, hey, wait a minute. This is a far more likely cause of what's happening here in the country. Not only that, but in 2014, for the first time, a vaccine was recommended for pregnant women in Brazil, the so-called Tdap vaccine, tetanus, diphtheria, uh, whooping cough uh, vaccine that contains aluminum, which is a known neurotoxin. Mm. So it can cross the blood-brain barrier. And now reported cases of birth defect, well, one of the places you would certainly look is the vaccine. But this is not happening, of course, in mainstream research and never does happen. It's always about we've got to find the virus. That is the, you know, the mandate immediately, right off the top. And, in fact, the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, in America, has a group. It's existed for, gee, I would say almost 80 years now, called the Epidemic Intelligence Service, which I call the medical CIA. Mm. They train doctors, uh, serious training, and the graduates afterwards are on call at any time pack a bag, go here in the world, go there in the world. We sense there's an outbreak here of something or other, and we need to find the cause. Well, all of these doctors are trained to look for the virus. 
that's what they do, no matter what the environmental conditions are. And I could cite you other cases where it's obvious that uh, what they were looking at, these uh, CIA medical-type people, had nothing to do with the germ. It was something patently obvious in the environment. They are always looking for, and they inevitably find, a virus, and they say, "Well, here it is. This is a cause. Focus. This is what's happening. Here we go." It's and, it's right out of the playbook of. Well, I was going to say it's Nixonian, but it's uh, it's almost it's also Obama's trick where you you stick the you stick the IRS on uh, on your political enemies. So now you, I mean, is that the case here that somehow Brazil, I don't know, because they're one of the BRIC countries and they're they've they've signed on to this big infrastructure bank that that China's trying to get off the ground as a kind of as a in opposition of the IMF, is is Brazil being made to pay for that? Um, you know that sin. Is that what this is all about? I think so. I think that this is one of the attacks that's being leveled at Brazil because it is one of the most vulnerable countries in the five BRICS nations, and this really has, among other things. This is not the only thing. Throwing a monkey wrench into the Olympics, which is supposed to be for any country that hosts it, this is our pride. This is what we can do. This is what we can show to the world. Here it is. And now they're suffering the humiliation of athletes saying, I'm not going. I'm not going. Because, and they sometimes mention Zika. I'd rather stay home. And then you have a situation where the athletes are being sort of super protected against the possibility of infection and so on and so forth, and people are being warned. Uh, you know, you could bring the Zika virus back to your home country after the games. So I'm sure that this is eating into considerable tourist dollars of people who would otherwise go to the Olympics in Rio but are staying home because they want to have nothing to do with this uh, thing that they're frightened of that has nothing to do with anything this oh the zika is here and so on people are staying home so revenues are going to dry up it's going to be a financial catastrophe for the city of rio the olympics and uh, it'll be very telling uh once the olympics have come and gone and you know who knows you know how they'll go, but um, once they've come and gone, do you suspect then that the whole Zika virus uh, story will also disappear because the Olympics are gone? Well, it'll disappear because the track record is they all do. Hmm. West Nile, SARS, swine flu, Ebola, bird flu, SARS, etc., etc. They come, they light up the sky, they go away. And now it's time for the next one. But I have to say, this is a really good one, propaganda-wise, Zika. See, the people in the CDC, World Health Organization, they're always looking for an answer to the question, how can we scare the people more deeply than we scared them before? Because we want to... We are really PR agencies for the pharmaceutical industry. So we want more medical drugs and we want more vaccines and we want everybody to comply with medical orders 
So if we say there's an epidemic, we want people to, uh, you know, stand up and salute and do whatever their doctor tells them. This is a whole gigantic operation that goes on from year to year with all sorts of new, you know, this is the latest one. But with Zika, it could have lots of legs, so to speak, as a story that would come and go and come and go because the issue of waging war against women and pregnant women has a great deal of staying power, shall we say. Sure, this is like a twofer. You get two for the price of one. You, d- you get to punish Brazil, ruin their Olympics uh, for uh, standing in opposition to the World Bank and the IMF and so forth uh, because it's a non-aligned country. And then two, you could lose an entire generation in Brazil because uh, women there en masse are deciding either A, not to get pregnant, or B, to abort. So you get the depopulation agenda working in there. It's a twofer. You bet. Exactly. Exactly. This is direct depopulation by fear. Don't get pregnant. And every time the media announce a new case of Zika somewhere, Oh, we got three cases here in America, and it looks like it's uh, you can transmit it sexually, and maybe by saliva and this and that. You know, that just adds to the fear. And there will be women who will say, "I don't want to get pregnant. I'm not going to get pregnant. It's just too risky." So this is going to go on. Actually, I just realized there's a threefer, and you you put me wise to this uh, a while ago, and that is, I believe, it's a. Um it's a company in England that's developed kind of a, a suicide mosquito. Uh, and uh, explain how that works. And that they're going to send this type of mosquito over and it, it won't reproduce? Yeah, Oxitec. Oxitec, yes. Uh, yes. This is another grand solution to the whole non-problem. And uh, the mosquitoes, uh, supposedly, they would uh, mate these genetically engineered mosquitoes, they would be males and they would mate with females in the wild. Uh, Females would uh, give birth to larvae, but uh, the larvae wouldn't pass through that stage. They would just die off. That's supposedly the effect. But the danger here is it's exactly the danger of GMO foods, crops, and so on, is that they are approved, certified, authorized as safe and effective with absolutely no real safety studies, which is exactly what happened in 1996 in America when uh, GMO crops were let in the door. The FDA basically said it's up to corporations to determine safety, and the corporations said, like Monsanto, well, the FDA says it's okay, so we're, we're good. So they just sort of, you know, one hand washed the other, and that was it. That was the approval process. But these mosquitoes so, are so effective, uh, this, this system, because they have tested it elsewhere, that they totally decimate. Now, listen, nobody likes mosquitoes. They're an, they're an incredible nuisance. But uh, when you collapse the mosquito population, that's, that's going to have dramatic ecological, and it's going to cause huge imbalances. Yes, there is that. And, in fact, there is a mosquito that would replace the ones that are killed. In other words, they would move into that uh, void. They are larger, more aggressive, 
And so the effects of that are completely unknown. But I'm also talking about human safety studies and safety uh, right. studies on animals and so forth, because none of that has been done. So all you get are assurances. Look, we know that these mosquitoes are completely safe and everything is great. And then you say, well, what are you basing that judgment on? And they say, well, we know that our genetically engineered mosquitoes kill the other the next generation of the other mosquitoes, and that's what safety means. Oh, wait a minute. That has nothing to do with safety. You're just saying that the killing effect works, but we're talking about, you know, actual safety, health. Where are those studies, long-term studies? Well, we don't have to do those. Wow. Uh, it's what a tangled web. Indeed. Uh, we, um, I, we're not going to have time to, to uh, talk about this um, uh, National Academy of Science report on on GMOs, but but very quickly, the the report's key finding really sort of uh, uh, cuts the legs uh, uh, out from under the whole the major claim of having GMOs in the first place, right? Exactly. They, the promise was higher crop yield, feed the world, end starvation with GMO crops. So the National Academy of Sciences, which is one of the most prestigious scientific organizations in America, comes out with a report. It's kind of garbled, but when you get down to the bottom line, what they're saying is we do not see any evidence that the genetic engineering of crops has produced in America higher yield, greater yield. Well, that was the whole idea. Exactly. You know? That was the whole idea. So where are the major media stories on this? Total failure, total... No, they spun it in the opposite direction to find something positive for GMOs in, in the report. Well, John, thank God we have uh, uh, health uh, reporters like yourself who can wade through these uh, reports and, um, and, and, and find, find us the truth. Uh, John Rappaport, thank you so much. Nomorefakenews.com. Always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be here. All right. My thanks to uh, Damian Murray, Ian Robertson, Albert Vinzel, John Franz, all of you for listening at home. Back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be aboard. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.